Please open your hearts and your purses to a man who is misunderstood. He gets all the kicks and the curses, though he wishes you nothing but good. Well, he wistfully begs you to show him you think he's a friend, not a louse. So remember the debt that you owe him, the landlord who lends you his house. So pity the downtrodden landlord and his back that is burdened and bent. Respect his gray hairs, don't ask for repairs, and don't be behind with the rent. ready? Good afternoon, Santa Cruz. It's every other Sunday again, and the beginning of the second week of the great lockdown. Uh, I want to welcome you to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly program on environment and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschutz. My guest today is UCSC Associate Professor of Sociology, Steve McKay. Are you there, Steve? Yep, I'm here. Okay. He's director of the uh, UCSC Center for Labor Studies and author of Satanic Mills or Silicon Island, The Politics of High-Tech Production in the Philippines. Steve is also co-director with Professor Miriam Greenberg of No Place Like Home, a community-initiated, student-engaged research project on Santa Cruz's affordable housing crisis. Steve, welcome to Sustainability Now. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Ronnie. Um, so why don't you we start by by ha- by you telling us about your background, your education and career at UCSC, and how you got into sociology? Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in the Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco, and a product of California public schools. Uh, went to high school in, in Richmond, and um, and I went to UC Berkeley for my bachelor's. I started in 1985, uh, and I studied political economy. Um, and after spending some time there, I really wanted to get an idea and studied kind of development and especially community development uh, and wanted to understand it in other parts of the world. Um, so I spent two years after my bachelor's uh, working in Indonesia with a local non-governmental organization. And I think that's really where my interest in community-based projects started. Um, and so uh, after several years there, I came back to the United States uh, working with other NGOs to support international development. And I ended up being interested in sociology, partly because it was the broadest discipline I could figure out <laughs> to be in, um, but also because it took uh, the issues of development um, and sort of the larger political economy and structures that influence local development. I was really trying to connect that um, always, and sociology seemed to allow me to kind of dig deeper into sort of to try to investigate the idea of international development with a pretty clear focus on development, you know, for who and who gets to define that development. Mm -hmm. So much of my work has been around kind of that theme, uh, but in many different areas of the world. So much of my work is focused on on labor and migration. Um, As you mentioned, uh, my first book was on uh, on the Philippines, on the electronics industry. Uh, but I came to Santa Cruz in 2007, so just before the last uh, crash, um, <laughs> and uh, it's in the sociology department. And um, and since being at uh, you know Santa Cruz, uh, I became director of the Center for Labor Studies, and that's where I really got interested in tying together kind of interests around the world about labor issues 
but then working locally with a bunch of different organizations and groups that had ties uh, to and interest in labor. Um, and so that's how I really kind of came to kind of focusing on community issues in Santa Cruz, but connected to the world. So what is No, no Place Like Home? Um, what's the problem? How do you approach it? Who's done the research? Yeah, so uh, No Place Like Home, again, I was, uh, did my real shout-out to my collaborator, Professor Miriam Greenberg, um, who's uh, been working with me. She couldn't join us today. But basically, I had done another project before this, starting in about 2014, um, called Working for Dignity. And this project um, was to better understand, we were approached by some local folks at the California Rural Legal Assistant, uh, the attorney there, Gretchen Regenhard, um, had been attending some, you know, uh, conferences we had about labor, and she came to us with a question, which was, you know, we know that a lot of low-wage workers in agriculture end up in low-wage services. Uh, And so she wanted to both find out what was going on in low-wage services and what was it like to be a low-wage service worker in Santa Cruz County, all toward figuring out how to better serve that group as um, CRLA, California Rural Legal Assistance, provides free legal assistance for low-wage workers. So um, we, uh, I did that project along with my students. So uh, over a period of about two and a half years, about 200 students uh, uh, over that time, we did a survey of what is it like to be a low-wage worker. And um, so that project, called Working for Dignity, focused uh, on issues like wage theft um, and low wages. But what we found, and when we talked to 1,200 people in Santa Cruz County, um, and one of the biggest issues people had was, you know, the issue was they're getting paid very low wages, but they're spending most of their money on housing. And so the, the number one issue for people about the low wages was they're not able to afford housing, and then that had all kinds of other repercussions. Yeah. So that's when in... 2016 or so, Miriam and I came to the idea with our community partners, so California Rural Legal Assistance, Community Action Board, and um, uh, Community Bridges, to do to better investigate sort of, well, what is it like to be a, a renter uh, in Santa Cruz County? How does the housing affordability crisis feel to people here in the county? So we found there just wasn't much data on it. Um, there, there's very low data on uh, – there's some things on affordability. Um, I think we're pretty familiar how much housing costs, uh, often for houses for a lot of us. Um, but we're not always sort of up to speed on what is it like for other people in other conditions, so renters, for example. Um, and and there, was little, there was basically no one doing the research locally um, and only spotty data um, nationally. So we thought, well, in the spirit of our other projects – we would get students uh, working with our community partners and actually go out and talk to renters across the county. Often those folks, low-wage workers and renters in our county, um, are what might be called difficult to reach or difficult to, uh, um, to do research, uh, in part because we have a very vulnerable low-wage population who's not always um, ready to answer questions. So mm-hmm. we know that a lot of the the folks in our county are undercounted because they don't necessarily participate in uh, large surveys like the census. So our idea was to go out and be a little more proactive uh, and go into those neighborhoods and those areas where we knew there were a lot of renters and go basically door to door and talk to people about what's their experience. And so that's what No Place Like Home, it's the 
the, you know, kind of housing affordability crisis study of Santa Cruz County. Well, I, I want to get into the issue of affordability, but before we do that, I, I'm just curious how you got your students to do this work. Was it through a class or, or what? Yeah, so um, I started uh, teaching a class first. It was a class on work and labor, and that uh, my students, I thought, to make it real to understand what it's like to actually go out and talk to people, and that was working for dignity. And so... Um, I hit on this kind of model of doing research that um, that we call community initiated student engaged research, and that you know kind of mouthful we call scissor. Um, and the idea of this is that we have um, students that have the language and cultural skills to do uh, research and connect with the yeah. folks here in Santa Cruz County. Um, and so I recruited students to be part of a, the course taught them, um, you know, research techniques, Mm -hmm. ethics of research, and all the methodology. And then we would go out um, through these different courses and go out and and use the course as a way for them to learn how to do the research and also connect with our community partners um, to then um, go around and do these surveys. So for No Place Like Home, we had over 250 students over about two and a half years participate in this study. how did you how did you find you know you said the people were, were might be hard to find and reluctant to answer questions how did you find them well so one we know in terms of uh, people tend to trust those organizations and, right. and or that they're either part of so church groups for example or mm-hmm. community organizations um, and so our community partners those like the day worker center that's run by the community action board um, or the family resource center in Live Oak those places where people um, are already there, who, who are already um, trusted by the community, we, we get introductions from those community groups. Um, and then our students would then uh, do things like they would actually do uh, neighborhood cleanups. They would do um, various kind of service projects. They did, for example, a, a Pathways to College um, workshop for parents. And the idea was before we ask them any questions, we want to do something for them first and demonstrate that, you know, we're not there just to extract information, but mm-hmm. actually to, you know, kind of do this along with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was fantastic was our students, um, again, many of them were, um, were themselves uh, from immigrant families, for example, um, that grew up speaking Spanish. And so uh, when they went, when we did go door to door in, uh, you know, again, from Santa Cruz all the way through Watsonville and Freedom, um, they could connect and get people to trust them, um, I think, better than, than many uh, if it was just the, for the census takers or other folks like that. So we feel partly working through the community organizations, our students were able to get people to trust them uh, and open up about Listen, let's take a break, quick break here um, before we go on to talk more about affordability. Uh, you're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz and KSQD.org on the Internet. Tune in to KSQD Tuesday mornings, mornings at 7 for Climate One, when I'm running the station, produced by the Commonwealth Club. Climate One is a forum for candid discussion among climate scientists, policymakers, activists, and concerned citizens with a focus on energy, economy, and the environment, and politics, I might add. Climate One airs Tuesday mornings at 7 and alternate Mondays at 6 p.m. here on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. One station, many voices, your ink spot on the radio dial. 
All right. This is Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and I'm speaking with Professor of Sociology Steve McKay um, uh, about, about the project that he co-directs with Professor Miriam Greenberg, who, by the way, is off celebrating a significant birthday. Congratulations, Miriam. Um, uh, no Place Like Home, which is a community-initiated, student-engaged research project on affordable housing in Santa Cruz and Santa Cruz County. So, Steve, affordability is a really tricky notion. I've been looking into it recently, um, and because in particular it differs from one city to, to the next. So, what does it mean in Santa Cruz? Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a great question. And when we talk about affordability, um, generally, what it, it you know it comes down to sort of you know how much should people be paying uh, for their housing? So that's usually kind of in terms of affordability. You know, is some place affordable to live? Uh, housing is the number one sort of the biggest expense that most families have, right? So if we look at our monthly, uh, you know, kind of our own monthly. Uh, budget, you know, the biggest chunk often the uh, often is for housing, whether it's for a mortgage payment or for rent. Um, and so, when we talk about generally affordability, we talk about thinking about the housing cost burden. So, how much of your income is going to your housing? Um, and so, various measures of affordability usually are some ratio of kind of your income versus how much things cost locally, right? And again, housing. We can look at other elements that go into your cost of living, but housing is is the number one, um, the number one for most people. So, when we go back to affordability, the housing cost. I mean, it goes way back, right, to, um, to at least the Housing Act, 1937, when they you know first established public housing, and they had to decide sort of, well, how are they going to do this? Were they going to just give people public housing, or you know, would there be a maximum income? But they came to the idea, um, based on even at the time in, in the 30s, that, uh, you know, that you have a how much should you be spending in rent? And an old saw was, oh, you know, you should spend about a quarter of your income on housing because you need the rest of your income for everything else, for food, for clothing, for, for other things. Right. And so the idea, the old one was one week's wages for one month's rent. So that, that so that idea about a quarter of your expenditure. But so so with the um, going back to the to public uh, in public housing started in the 1930s, really 1940s. Um, the idea was that families shouldn't have to pay more than initially it was just 20 percent of their income. That was the cutoff that that you shouldn't have to spend more than 20 percent of your income on rent. So in, if you uh, could get into uh, public housing because you you were poor, you were below a certain income level. They did. They they set your rent as a percentage of your income. So if you lost your job, your rent would go down. If you got a raise, your 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 um, your rent would go up. So so that was it. In 1968, they raised that level to 25 percent. So if you're in housing, you should have spent 25 percent um, of it. And then in 1981, uh, partly because of the crisis and the, their expenditures, they said, well. You should have to spend 30% of your income on rent. So in 1981, the 30% uh, cutoff was established, and that's where it stays today. So generally, when um, when they talk about affordability, um, they say your how your kind of housing cost burden. Meaning, if you're spending more than 30% of your gross income on your rent and utilities, for example. So that's that's where the so that's usually where the affordability comes in. 
And you can see this also when you're trying to get a, you know, that's just for renters, but in terms of when you're going to try to get a bank loan for a mortgage, right, they want to look at how much your income and how much you're able to do. So similar kind of thing when you're trying to get a mortgage loan, they want you to be able to, you know, keep it at around, 30, you know, so usually 25, 30% of your income that you could, you know, pay uh, every month for or your uh, mortgage and interest payments. Um, well, I mean, I've seen charts about this. Who, who is in particular is affected by this, the, this affordability crisis? Well, I mean, in, in general, everyone is, right? Because it's sort of anyone who's trying to pay for their uh, housing in some ways and everything else in their lives are affected. But the, the actual cutoffs, like these official cutoffs, that's for those who are in um, public housing or are getting a housing voucher, which mm-hmm. is, you know, from the federal government, known as Section 8. So if you're, you know, you have a low enough income to qualify for a housing subsidy, then this is how your rent is determined, right? So there's an income cutoff, but, and below that income, they're only going to take 30% of your income for your rent. That's the, the HUD and uh, California Housing Department uh, criteria, yeah, it's right? it's actually HUD. It's the federal criteria. That's yeah, right. uh-huh. Um, but what I've, seen is, what I've seen is that, of course, um, this affects people whose income is higher. Um, you know, uh, lo- Absolutely. I mean, the affordability, right? So that's just if you can, uh, I mean, we, we really know, like, uh, you know, for the federal subsidies, they're just not enough of those subsidies. Um, and so um, I think there's a, you know, enormous waiting list still in, um, in um, Santa Cruz. And many people who, um, who have low enough incomes to qualify for housing subsidies, only, you know, a very few actually, you know, receive those subsidies, right? So, um, so that affordability really affects everyone. You could, you know, um, who's, again, just trying, I mean, I think this is something that we all feel in Santa Cruz, how expensive it is, is how much, um, you know, even what's considered, you know, middle class incomes, many people are spending 30 to 50 percent of their income just on their housing. What, I, what I've seen um, is that, you know, people, people who have uh, certain levels of, of uh, positions like teachers and police Police people and the like are having trouble living in Santa Cruz because of of the uh, the lack of affordable housing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's definitely not, um, you know, well, if we adjust the, for in, uh, you know, federal poverty lines, um, usually they determine it nationally. But if you um, you weigh and put into those calculations the cost of housing, Santa Cruz has one of the highest poverty rates in the country, right? Where, wow. um, and, um, and so uh, Santa Cruz has, has become really, and for many people, kind of absolutely unaffordable, right? And, and so we see all kinds of problems that relate to that affordability, that people are having to move further away from their jobs. In order, and so you have that, you know, Highway 1, you go on Highway 1 between Santa Cruz and Watsonville anytime after, say, 1.30 or 2 o'clock on a workday. Um, and it's packed because people are, you know, people in Santa Cruz are working over the hill, and then um, and that's made Santa Cruz expensive. So people working in Santa Cruz are living in Watsonville. People working in Watsonville are getting pushed down to to Salinas, right? Um, so we see all the repercussions of the unaffordability crisis. Um, it also it also makes it uh, difficult for employers to keep uh, to keep their employees here. I understand that. 
people people have to move away because they just can't find something or they just can't afford it on the salaries that are being paid. Absolutely. And we, uh, we worked with uh, the SEIU, uh, you know, Service Employees International Union, who's uh, most of the city and county workers work for. And when we polled and, and surveyed their, their members, um, that was a big issue, that less than half of the people who work for the city of Santa Cruz can afford to live in Santa Cruz. Um, and then when we looked at SEIU members, for example, who wor- worked for Salud Palo de Gente down in Watsonville, they, again, have less than half of their people could afford to live in Watsonville. So they were pushed further out. Um, and so, you know, on and on, and we heard this, um, the sanitation department, I was talking to some guys in that department, and, you know, in the whole department, there was only one guy who still lived in Santa Cruz. Um, huh, yeah. And so this goes for emergency workers, too, right? Um, and this, could, this is, has a lot of issues around public health, for example, right now in the pandemic. If someone needs to get to their job, right, but they can't afford to live there, and they're first responders, then they're not able to be there, right, when, they, when mm-hmm. we need them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really makes sense for a city, right, that think of all the people who are necessary to make the city run, those sanitation workers, the firefighters, the police. If they can't live in the community, that's actually bad for everyone in the community, not just for them. Right? Um, and teachers, we see that absolutely a, a big issue is that the Santa Cruz School District cannot keep teachers because it's just it's it's actually the the most unaffordable place for teachers in the country, right? Um, and so the, the, there's some, and I think one thing that's happening is thinking about doing uh, workforce um, housing. So uh-huh. I, I know one thing that the, the Santa Cruz County of Education is trying to do is thinking about building housing on some of their, their land that they control, and you know, since they're, you know, it's very interesting on the west side, for, for example, um, there was a Natural Bridges Elementary School, right, that right. closed. Why did, it closed in part because fewer families can live on the, can afford to live on the west side. So they were trying to think, well, what could we do with that land? And now they're thinking about and are in plans to develop teacher housing hmm. um, on that site. <clears throat> and so, so there are some movements toward that and recognizing that it is a it is a big issue for certain employers it, it would be interesting to do a study of the the social cost of all of this you know because the the cost is dumped on the individual uh and the individual's family right it's it's not considered to be part of the a cost a broad thing that the community should should somehow cover and um i just wonder what that would turn out to be it's something to think about um well, let's let's talk about the elephant in the room, uh, the university, in all of this. Yeah. So uh, you know, there are two two ways to think about this. One, of course, is uh, mostly undergraduate enrollments, but also graduate students who are competing for available housing with others. Um, and the other one is, I've forgotten now. There was a second thing. Um, oh yes, yes, I remember. You know how that affects the uh, the staff at the university because they're, of course, uh, we we both know that they don't get paid very well. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about that. What what is the university's role in all of this? Yeah, no, that's it's, it's a it's a big question, and I think when we talk about kind of the affordability crisis, so we're not in a housing crisis; we're in an affordable housing crisis. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and so if we're looking at that, you you know, you want to look 
as, as we would kind of as what's what's you know where did we get how did we get here and what's been you know what what's pushing those prices so high that affordability problem and clearly it's both a problem on the both the, the demand side and the supply side and so if we start with looking at kind of a confluence of factors you know again over a long period we definitely have to factor in university in rising demand right so that that clearly one of the issues and pushing the rise of demand is students. Um, but they're only one um, contributor. So that's the always, we definitely want to talk about kind of the elephant in our room, but we have to recognize the other elephants. Sure, <laughs> and, um, sure. And, and so, you know, we will also look at, you know, kind of the rise of Silicon Valley. Um, and, the, you know, for as expensive as it is here, it's even more expensive over the hill, right? And so, um, so that's one of the big uh, pushes on demand as well. Um, and both for, you know, kind of uh, single-family homes, but also for rentals. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, Santa Cruz is a beach town. There's a lot of short-term rentals. And so a lot of the rise of Airbnb, a lot of housing that might have been uh, used for, you know, long-term renters, you know, regular um, people who live here, get con- got converted to Airbnb and other kind of uh, vacation rentals. And so that also kind of um, meant that uh, there were fewer units for, for renters because, because of the, you know, um, the entrance of Airbnb. But students, absolutely. And, again, it's not just students, but it's also faculty and staff, um, right, that uh, mm-hmm. as the, the university has expanded, um, they're only – we house – uh, at UCSC, half of all our undergraduates on campus, and that's actually higher than all the other UCs. Um, so we actually house more students on campus than other universities. But given how big we are, even half is still a lot, right, that uh, the other half um, are living off campus. And so they're definitely adding to the demand um, in Santa Cruz, so that they absolutely are part of it. And one of the reasons we did the project, actually, in working with our students was um, students are often the kind of the face of or often get the blame for the affordability crisis. And um, we we wanted to be uh, people in town to be able to actually talk to some students. And so the students were going door to door. And, you know, it was a pretty tough job because when they would come to a door and say, hey, I'm here to talk about affordability crisis. And the, many doors were slammed in their faces or they were yelled at and, and told, you know, the problem with housing is you students. Um, and the students, you know, took it with a great assault, but they also got into a lot of uh, conversations with people who live in Santa Cruz. And um, I think one of the things that uh, happened out of the project was people in town started seeing a lot of these students as fellow renters. So rather than uh, part of the problem, um, there started to be connections between students as renters and locals as renters. And in fact, in Santa Cruz, in the city of Santa Cruz, Renters now make up 60% of the population, right? So we're actually a majority renter um, city. But it was often kind of local activists and renters often blamed students for the problem. Um, And what we saw in the last couple of years is that students and other renters actually started getting together and instead of blaming each other, started trying to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, on mm-hmm. on on the other areas, and that that's the sort of supply side. That I don't know, we can talk about the supply side as well. That's really important. Yeah, let's come back to that in a minute. Okay, okay. Um, you're listening to KSQD ninety point seven FM in Santa Cruz and KSQD.org on the internet. 
You're listening to Sustainability Now here on KSQD, 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz. Emily, the engineer, and I are trying to figure out what that last uh, message was all about, and we we haven't. But anyway, um, this is Ronnie Lipschitz, and I'm speaking with Professor of Sociology Steve McKay about this project he co-directs with Miriam Greenberg at the university, No Place Like Home. And we were just talking about the, uh, the, the affordable housing demand side uh, of the equation. Um, Steve, one thing I want to I wanted to bring up is that the university is now working on its uh, long range development plan through 2040, and are working with a projection of about 10,000 additional students, um, without really making clear where where they're going to be housed. So you know, if we go back to that 50 percent number, that still means that they're going to be about 5,000 people coming into the community. Um, how's that going to, ha- what kind of impact is that going to have? I mean, I don't want to blame the students. All right. Uh, I actually want to blame geography. Um, but I'll come back to that in a moment. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it's, uh, you know, the long range that, that number has, you know, wow, people were shocked with that number. And, and, you know, it, it's like you say, in terms of geography or whatever, it's going to have an impact that number. And so, uh, we've seen some other campuses that have done various, um, you know, kind of uh, memorandums of understanding between the cities. I'm thinking of, of UC Davis, for example, um, where they're, um, you know, kind of they have to account for, you know, the impact to every student they add in housing. So um, there are kind of uh, uh, kind of models to go out there in terms of planning. How do you plan it? I mean, one thing is California is not shrinking in the population going to UC. So one, you know, thing is they just shouldn't come, right, that we should stop uh, allowing more students. And, you know, while I understand that, that and that there is this restriction kind of uh, by geography, the same token, you know, it's already UC is only let in 10% of the, t- of the students, you know, from high school. So to restrict and just say, well, you know, we're full, uh, we can't take anymore, really doesn't, it's not what the, you know, the university public system is about, right? They still need to accommodate the, the the students and the families and the, you know of California in the UC system, so I think we do have to deal with it. And that's not you know it's not going to go away. We can't say just simply we can't take that many. We have to, it's more about planning for you know um, that kind of rise over that length of time. And so some of it is building more affordable student housing, and that's something that is in almost no one's vocabulary except right. for Miriam and I, yeah. is the idea of affordable student housing. Because, you know, now they're under pressure to actually, you know, that all housing needs to needs to make money or at least support itself. And they're moving to uh, public-private partnerships and other kind of models. Um, but for the most part, you know, rent on campus is always more expensive than it is in town, in almost every market, right? And, um, and that often ends up driving the cost of the local market. We've heard landlords say, yeah, we index our rent to the cost of the dorms. Mm. And uh, so that's actually, it's actually been higher. The, the state actually requires that student housing pay for itself. It's, it's treated as a separate category from capital improvement on the, on the university campus, campuses. So, so, you know, I, I, part of that has to do with the cost of, uh, of building the, the Student Housing West project. Uh, which is supposed to start last year, who knows when it will start, um, is is quite expensive over the, the lifetime of the project. 
and and relies on that continuing flow of uh, of rents in order to uh, to be financed. So um, it's a kind of a, a circle there. The university ought to be looking into into strategies for building uh, low co- low cost housing, probably in the town. We can come back to talk about that in a moment. Um, I, I know that L- the LRDP envisions four new colleges as well. And I don't think anybody is quite sure where the funds for that are going to come from. Um, so let's talk about the supply side now, okay? Um, yeah. What, what, first of all, how do I put this? You know, what, what is responsible for just the general high cost of housing in Santa Cruz? I mean, I know, I know partly it's supply, but, but it seems to me that, you know, if the market, if the market works as it's supposed to, haha, right? People should be building should be building housing like crazy. So, uh, right? What? Why? Why doesn't that happen? Let's start with that one. Yeah. So, there, I mean, it's uh, Cruz is is fascinating um, for this, and this is something that Miriam and I, since the um, since the survey, uh, have gotten digging more in, and, and Miriam really has done a lot of this work, and so. Um, I'm just going to summarize some of the things. But on the supply side, it's a really interesting because Santa Cruz is, um, uh, well, you know, we're building, we've been writing something about this. You know, there's a, a book, very well-known book about Santa Cruz by uh, Richard Gendron and, um, and Bill Domhoff called yeah. The Leftmost City, yeah. right? Power and Progressive Politics. And Miriam and I are in the middle of writing something now, and who gets to live in the leftmost city, right? And which is sort of the housing politics that came out of that. So if you read that book and look at it, it's very instructive for thinking about kind of what happened in Santa Cruz. And the basic, you know, punchline is Santa Cruz as the leftmost city, you know, with these progressives um, got together with neighborhood groups and were able to stop the growth machine, kind of the idea of, you know, your what was the Lighthouse Field was going to become a convention center, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and basically, in the 70s, Santa Cruz progressives got together with neighborhood groups and defeated a lot of those kind of typical growth machine um, kind of business-oriented, you know, large-scale development. And so in some ways, it was good, right? The idea is you defeated bad development. Now, the problem came, though, is that then when it came to then think, okay, well, if we're going to, you know, um, keep out bad development, just very high end, uh, uh, there was some vision that, well, we need to have, um, you know, some development for, like, affordable housing and things like that. And what happened was, in in many ways, in Santa Cruz, that the progressives were often um, doing this in the name of environmentalism. So they Mm -hmm. passed measures J and O in the 1980s, right, that helped create a green belt. So the idea is you should maintain areas that should not be built. But when you do that, then you have to have, okay, well, what you have to build in some areas. And so they created in JNO the idea of an urban services line, right? And the idea was to promote development along transportation corridors, right? So the idea was planning um, the, the development. So that was the idea. But then... Um, as they started trying to build along those transit corridors, the neighborhood organizations that were really instrumental in keeping out bad development um, ended up sort of pushing very hard to uh, not to allow any development, particularly multifamily homes, right? Yeah. And so what happened was neighborhood groups um, 
had changed the Santa Cruz general plan to protect single-family home zoning in, in most of the city, making it very difficult for developers to assemble the parcels necessary to build apartment buildings, right? So like you're saying, it would seem like people would jump in this market and build given that you can make so much, but the zoning makes it very difficult, actually. So you have height limits, you have um, difficulty assembling parcels. And then in 1994, the, at the county level, they moved to downzone um, the unincorporated areas in the county, right, which are massive. So Live Oak, for example, that area is all unincorporated. Mm-hmm. And downzoning means that it was all designated for single-family homes on large lots, right? Mm-hmm. So at the same time as you had a green belt, right, so you couldn't build in that area and along the coast in those fragile eco-areas, but they also downzoned any urban areas, too. So you basically couldn't build... Um, multifamily housing anywhere. And, and much of that, again, was sort of, again, this progressive coalition that, de- that helped keep out bad development turned out to be uh, not able to deliver any affordable development. And that's the main reason why we're in the problem we're in now. D- does the cost of land have anything to do with this? Uh, absolutely. Cost of land also, is, you know, makes building expensive. So this is where you said, you know, why doesn't the market take care of it? Well, because the market for land, again, because the way the zoning is, so land parcels are very expensive. So for any developer to make their money back, they're going to aim at the very high end of the market, right? Mm-hmm. So you look mm-hmm. at uh, the Pacific Apartments down to end of Pacific there, any of the newer developments, like it's things are so expensive that then they want then they have to charge a very high price to make that back. And so basically the market never delivers affordable housing. No developer wants to build affordable housing. There's demand there, but it's they're not going to recoup their investments. So left to its own devices, and this is what the Yimbis, the yes in my backyard folks, say, well, we just need more housing, all housing. Well, if you do that without any regulation, all you're going to get is very high-end housing, right? Right, um, yeah. And so you see some of that, um, you know, kind of development. And, and then you start seeing some investors come in. So the Outlook Apartments, for example, on the west side, you know, yeah, on Western yeah, yeah. Drive. Where all the students live, so, yeah. Right. Well, so that was sold in 2018, right? And it wasn't clear who bought it. They sold it for $55 million, and now it's called the Hilltop Apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were curious, and one of my students was curious to find out, well, who was it that bought that, right? You know, that, that was really expensive. It's a big kind of thing. Maybe they could put in some affordable units, you know, so there was a, a glimmer of um, hope that maybe the new owners would, you know, price it where it could be affordable. Well, it turns out, when in tracking from the, the address of the LLC, um, that it was Golden Sachs, right, from New York, that purchased it for $55 million. And they immediately raised, they, they renovated some of the apartments and immediately raised the rent. And so now, one-bedroom apartments at the Hilltop, Hilltop Apartments go for $2,500 to $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. Two-bedroom apartments are up to $4,000 a month, right? That's, so that's the level, like, that's where people are jumping into the market. That's about what my, my son pays in San Jose, actually. Um, so, so yeah, let's, uh, to what degree, uh, are outside investors coming into the housing market in Santa Cruz? I mean, that's really interesting. And I read that, um, 
you know, various financial corporations uh, are looking at real estate as the, well, we'll see what happens, of course, but as the next gold mine, basically. It's a, you know, how, how widespread is that in Santa Cruz? Do you have any sense? Uh, it's a good question. We're trying to actually figure that out. I think after we, you know, did this whole project where we, you know, so for No Place Like Home, we talked to 1,700 renters, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so we really wanted to understand it from the renter's point of view. But if we learned anything from the project, right, it was that, well, renters aren't driving this market. It's it's really, it's, it's the producers and the managers of housing that are doing it, right? And so we're now looking, and it's much, much harder. Um, to figure out who owns what, for example, right? Look at when the the city council just tried to have a rent, you know, renter registry. So not, they weren't trying to, you know, no rent control, nothing. They just wanted a register of who is renting what. Mm-hmm. And all the landlords balked and, you know, uh, protested that they don't want to even have that, collect that data, right? So we actually have a pretty poor idea. So you can go and find out, you know, again, like the um, Outlook Apartments, now the Hilltop Apartments, you can go and look up who owns it. But there's so many shell companies, right? It takes a while to figure out who owns what. Um, and so the, it, it could be pretty pretty difficult to figure out. Um, but in terms of, like, Santa Cruz becoming this investor's area, we definitely see that happening um, in different ways. So Silicon Valley um, realtors working with, local realtors and you know there have been ads saying you know we're bringing silicon valley you know uh, buyers into santa cruz and so there's definitely been a lot of kind of focus on you know bringing more investors in whether those are their bank investors um you know we just don't know how many are um are actually being done by sort of financial organizations but one curious way that we, we found how influential um, outside investors and interests are was around the measure M, right? The 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 rent control and just cause eviction measure mm-hmm. failed. Um, and what we did was just looking at who financed that that campaign. And if we look at it, and again they they outspent uh, the yes on M campaign, which is a completely local campaign, right? That raised about fifty thousand dollars to run that campaign. Well, the no on M campaign raised nearly a million dollars, right? Um, so, um, so outspent nearly twenty to one. And mm-hmm. but uh, but of course, you have to register where those donations are coming from. And so when we looked at it, um, and this was e- this was even before the final tally was in, when it was about seven hundred fifty thousand. Um, uh, they had just before the election in November, so this was like October 2018, they had to register who their uh, donations were coming from, right? At the time, again, they had $750,000. Well, the California Apartment Association had put in over $350,000, right, um, to defeat any kind of rent control in Santa Cruz, right? So there's no way. And now the local realtors, they were able to, you know, raise some money locally too, uh, but nothing on that on that scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the largest single donor was the National Association of Realtors, that they just, the National Association of Realtors, had contributed more than $200,000, right? Um, and so it was, and then, the, then the, the next largest was the California Association of Realtors. So you saw, um, you know, a lot of outside interests that were both the apartment associations, so those who own and and um, 
run apartments, but also the real estate um, interest at the national and state level were very, very much involved uh, in trying to defeat any regulation on rent um, and and eviction, particularly um, in Santa Cruz. Okay, let me take a take a quick break, okay? You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz and ksqd.org on the Internet. The second and fourth Sundays of the month, KSQD presents Faith Matters, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Faith Matters is an interfaith discussion with leaders from a variety of religious and spiritual traditions. The discussion is wide-ranging and respectful. Tune into Faith Matters Sunday evening, at 6 in 15 minutes on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station, the ink spot on your dial. You're listening to Sustainability Now. This is Ronnie Lipschitz, and I am speaking with Professor Steve McKay, who is the co-director with Miriam Greenberg of No Place Like Home, a community-initiated, student-engaged research project on affordable housing in Santa Cruz. And we're, we've just been talking about uh, outside money and, and its influence. Um, you mentioned the, uh, uh, was it Proposition M? The, or you, you mentioned the discussion about a rental registry, and I, I couldn't help but think about the, uh, the gun owners who are afraid the government is going to come and, you know, pry guns from their cold, dead hands. It sort of sounds very much the same. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about solutions, okay? What yeah. what have you what what sorts of things uh, have you thought about or supported or yeah, so, proposed? I mean, this is really important, um, and I think it's you know in just as uh, how complex the the problem is um, that the solutions have to be similarly kind of complex. But we tend to boil it down, and and we have a, a, a large section again. My colleague Miriam Greenberg help put this together, really, um, on our um, on our website. So if you go to No Place Like Home, so without spaces, just noplacelikehome.ucsc.edu, uh, we have a whole policy tools section. And um, and the way it's organized and the way we tend to think about it, as a lot of folks who are, you know, kind of doing this work on affordable housing, is to think of it as the three Ps, okay? So production, preservation, and protection. And so let me just run through quick, because the idea is that you need kind of policy on all three of these if you're going to, you know, really deliver affordable housing. Um, And, you know, this was one of the big issues with the Measure M, the rent control, and those who were against it were always saying, well, if you have rent control, people are going to, landlords going to drop out of the market, it's going to reduce supply, you're going to end up going to drive up rents and hurting the people that you most want to help. And that's, you know, you know, in a very isolated way, you know, it could have some of those dynamics. But the idea is that protection of tenants through rent control is really an immediate important thing to do because uh, in the current market that they're the most vulnerable. So in terms of that, we kind of think of short and long term, medium term and long term. Do you need protection of tenants first before you do anything, right? And the, one of the main things is protection against kind of, you know, exorbitant rent rises and, um, you know, kind of uh, forced moves and eviction. So Mm -hmm. protection is one thing. And so that's why, you know, we were supportive of the Measure M uh, because it did protect tenants. But that's only one piece. The other key piece really is production. And so you need more production of new affordable housing. 
And that could be on campus, right? Again, the, we need to deal with it in the student way. So the university needs to be part of this conversation of developing affordable student housing. Um, but also the, the county and city of Santa Cruz and the state of California right, and the federal government need to be, um, you know, make it more possible to deliver, you know, sort of more affordable, affordable housing. So, um, so on the production side, um, you know, that we've lost a lot of tools. To the you know, federal government has basically disinvested in uh, affordable housing. Now, moving more toward this voucher system, where you know, if you qualify for, it, you're able to get a voucher. To, but that doesn't. But um, apartment complexes landlords aren't required to um, honor those. Um, those uh, vouchers. So, you know, uh, one thing is producing more affordable housing. And this is where cities and counties could actually build, you know, 100% affordable housing. Uh, the problem was the redevelopment agencies that used to make that possible, right, in 2011, uh, because of the financial crisis, Governor Brown, you know, basically uh, got rid of the uh, those, the redevelopment agencies. So locations now just don't have very many tools to, to do it. They don't have, they can't themselves. So they use the inclusionary zoning. And so we have seen that in Santa Cruz, the inclusionary zoning has gone from what was practically 10%, it's doubled to 20%. Um, so that's one way um, to do it. But they also could do other things. And I think this is where um, trying to build more affordable housing, being creative, um, like the school district building workforce housing for its teachers, the city and county, and it comes down again to who controls land. If we can figure out for the folks who control land to allow or to invest in housing and let that housing be taken off the market, right, so it's not directly um, uh, a market good, then you can um, produce some, you know, kind of, affordable housing in perpetuity, right? So, what, what do you mean by so taking it off the market? Do you mean um, basically uh, it's not available for sale or speculation? Is that what you mean? Exactly what uh, I mean. So, yeah. so, for example, how this, the, the teacher housing. Well, for example, I'll take it even closer to home. I live in faculty housing, right? My faculty housing, I own my house, but I don't own the land that it sits on. Right. It sits on land from... So I get the benefits of homeownership. I get to deduct my interest payments for my taxes. But I can't sell it to anyone I want. Um, with the idea is that I bought it at below cost as, as a faculty person. I have to sell it back to the university. But it also doesn't accrue. It doesn't accrue profit like you would in the open market. It only increases the value at the rate of inflation so that the next professor who moves in here is going to pay basically the same cost in that future time that I paid when I bought it, right? So that idea is that it remains affordable, to, to but it's restricted, right, to faculty. So, so, this would be, what, um, so this would be something, for instance, available to teachers. Um, one question about that, and this is this has been raised in another context, not on the show, but are there, you know, if since you're living on the campus, the university controls that. If you're building something in the city, on which is essentially public land, is restricting housing like that, let's say, to teachers regarded as housing discrimination? Well. Um, none. It's not housing discrimination. Again, it depends on well, who controls it. So most of the models, they have to have. It's not because um, so school districts own the land. So it's not really 
fully public land. It's yeah, owned by the, yeah. the district, yeah. so they can use it. And usually it's also teachers and staff. Same with faculty right, and staff right, housing. So it's right. not just, you know, one group, but anyone. But this is something the county is thinking about, right? The county ha- could identify parcels of land that they control, and this was something that the union was very interested in, that they could work together to help develop, um, you know, county worker housing, you know, in the county that would – you know, both be that the both the union would be interested in it, and um, from polling their employees, they were definitely interested in it. Um, and the county has access to land that they could use to do this. And the idea is that you know, again, priority given to those who serve the, the public in the county. So think about teachers. You think about those emergency workers or other county health workers, for example. Right. So there are a number of different models. And then again, it doesn't have to be restricted. There's also the idea of um, doing uh, community land trusts. So public, yeah. I mean, excuse me, private groups could do the same thing, and this is, there's, um, you know, now a group in Santa Cruz um, trying to develop uh, an affordable housing model using the uh, community land trust model, where they would purchase land or try to have maybe someone would donate land, but then they would do something similar where um, they would build housing, but it would have certain restrictions but it would also remain affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, I, you know, I might as well put a pitch in here for a project I'm working on, which which is to try and uh, facilitate construction of large numbers of accessory dwelling units in backyards, um, you know, to get homeowners to sort of buy into th- this idea of, of community well-being and welfare. Um, and that then, of course, addresses, again, this issue of, of the, the land ownership. Um well, uh, so what's what's the what's the plan for your your project, No Place Like Home? What are you doing next with it? Well, I, I think we are looking at some of these other areas, trying to understand. Um, well, one, for example, Miriam, after all this, has joined. She is now on the city planning right, commission, yeah. and so she actually is, you know, um, elbows deep every day in trying to help deliver some of these projects. You know, understanding. Uh, and so part of it is staying definitely deeply engaged locally um, now that we have a better understanding of what it's like, ha- you know, to be involved. And so there we've been, you know, we've brought people to talk about community land trusts to help set up land trusts here. we put people, you know, different organizations in touch with uh, groups that are further along in the area, the other parts of the Bay Area. Um, we're still active with um, uh, tenant um, tenant organizations that are, you know, still active on thinking about the protection of tenants because that's still clearly uh, a big issue for a lot of uh, people. Um, and I think, but we are interested on an academic kind of level thinking about this idea of who gets to live in the leftmost city. What is the future of a place like Santa Cruz that paints itself as progressive yet is, you know, incredibly unequal um, and, uh, you know, and and is completely unaffordable? You know, how could we return to a kind of putting together, thinking about what coalitions could deliver affordability, right, in kind of creative ways. And I think that's, you know, as we go forward, we're still going to do the academic side. But it's really trying to think, okay, you know, what are those three Ps? How, how might we be involved and, you know, um, help realize some of those models here locally? So, um, so you know, we're, we're, we're – I mean, I think this is one thing about being – here that, you know, uh, 
involved in a local project, we're still very connected with the community organizations we work with. Um, and so we're, you know, we're here for the long haul. Mm-hmm. In that sense, we don't want the university to at all be, um, you know, uh, let off the hook. But we also feel the university could play a real role in trying to figure out some of these things. And again, just like we saw with the students, I think the, if we work, the university and some of us in it, work closely with the city and county um, and other organizations, I mean, we could kind of pull this together and try to think you know, in many ways outside of the typical development box for how to kind of deliver the affordability that Santa Cruz really needs. Well, uh, I'm afraid we're out of time, but thank you, Steve, for uh, being on Sustainability Now. As he mentioned, you can find information about No Place Like Home by looking at noplacelikehome.ucsc.edu. Two weeks from today, my guest is going to be our own engineer, Emily Dunham, who's going to talk about her uh, doctoral research up at the university on kelp forests and sea urchins. She told me she's got a whole bunch of sea urchins uh, up at the on the campus, uh, and the condition of the California coast. So that's on Sunday, April 5th, 5 to 6 p.m., right here on KSQD, 90.7 FM on your dial, and ksqd.org. And by the way, the station is rebroadcasting Sunday shows in the from, from this particular slot on Tuesday mornings from 6 to 7 a.m. for all of those of you who are getting up early, even though the great hunkering down is still going on. So until next time, until next every other Sunday, sustainability now. Please open your hearts and your purses to a man who is misunderstood. He gets all the kicks and the curses, though he wishes you nothing but good. Well, he wistfully begs you to show him you think he's a friend, not a louse. So remember the debt that you owe him, the landlord who lends you his house. So... You've been listening to Sustainability Now with Ronnie Lipschitz here at KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7.